0: We've done a few projects with this, but they've all just been with the mothers, just simply because. You know, about 80% of our caregivers are mothers, you know, by by the time their baby's about 12 months, which we need a lot of our babies to be. A lot of the, most of the dads have gone back to work, so it's much harder, so practically. There is some research with dads in the context of kind of sharing of good emotions. And this is something I think about a lot, this idea that there was one lovely paper about how you have your kind of, you you have more, on average, you have more of your kind of intermediate kind of mood states with your mum. And then you have more kind of intense bursts of high positive affect with your dad. And I definitely do that with my kids. I, I get home at 5.30 in the evening and then we have like about half an hour of really, really energetic play. Forget frequently asked questions.
1: Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1%
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a professor, Sam Wass, he's a professor of Early Years Neuroscience at the UEL Baby Development Lab. This is at the University of East London, so we're going to talk about parental neuronal responsivity to infants' visual attention, but the interaction between parents and children, and uh, other topics that uh, Sam will be covering. So welcome, Sam, and thank you for being on the podcast. All right, Richard, Thanks for having me. If you would, tell me a bit about your background. And then uh, let's go over the areas that you're currently focusing on in their research.
0: Yeah, so my background is quite mixed. Um, I studied at Oxford for undergraduate and then worked outside neuroscience for about 10 years, working in a very different field in the theatre. Um, and then I came back and did a PhD in London. Um, and then I did a, a postgrad in um, Cambridge. And then since then, I, I've moved to the, the University of East London, which is quite a small place where we get a, really get an interesting mix of different babies. The, the main reason for moving was in Cambridge, you're... Uh, It's very, very hard not to get a kind of very posh middle class. Cambridge in the UK is a very posh middle class town. Um, And we really get a really nice mix of babies um, in East London from all walks of life, all backgrounds. It's one of the most mixed areas of the world. It's like your big cities, you know, you really get this massive melting pot. So, yeah, really, really fun and and, and lots and lots of kind of interesting research that we're doing here at the moment. Okay, so what are some of the research that you're working on right now? What are some of the questions? Yeah, so, so our main thing that we're looking at at the moment is about kind of the early development of... Kind of two things attention and stress and what we're particularly doing that's that's quite different to how a lot of other people are doing it Are, are we looking at how these things develop kind of in the space between two people so we're used to very much thinking of kind of attention and learning as things that belong in one individual's brain and similarly, we're used to thinking of stress as something that belongs within one person. You know, we, you know, in the West, we've we, we've had this very idea, individualistic approach to you know thinking of our own identity, um, and we're trying to take a different approach. So we're trying to look at you know really to be recording a lot from two people at once. Uh, so we record a lot from kind of children and their parents at once, and then look at kind of these two things, attention and stress, as kind of interpersonal properties. So as I say, you know how they exist in the space between. You know a child and their parent. So things like how children pick up on our moods. You know how we pick up on their moods. So how I'm affected uh, by the kind of mood fluctuations of my family, and then also this idea of kind of shared attention. So I don't know. You know, if you've got kids, Richard, or or, or your listeners, I'm sure I'm sure some of them do. it. you know, one of the things you really notice um, with your own kids is they're very very sensitive to what you're paying attention to. So you know, it's, it's a bane of my life because I'm sitting there, you know, my, my two-year-old daughter is sitting there trying to play and I'm sitting there just trying to do a quick email on the laptop. And the minute I start paying attention to my laptop, she suddenly gets absolutely fascinated by it. Um, and it really is just the fact that it's what you're interested in that means that she becomes interested in it too. So it's these types of kind of social influences on attention. So why we're interested in things that other people are interested in that we really, really don't understand very much about at all in the context of neuroscience at the moment. Because, you know, as I say, most of the things that we understand about the brain comes from studying, you know, individual brains on their own in an fMRI scanner where you're just kind of viewing stuff on a screen. So these kind of short-lived social influences on attention and stress, we really don't understand very much at all at the moment. So that's what we're trying to find out about. Hmm. Okay. You know, while you were speaking, I was imagining someone... Outside in a crowd, and someone points up
2: at something and then everyone starts looking so I guess in adults too, there's this directed attention. people take cues from other people on what to look at and what to be interested in that kind of thing but so in babies what to, what are some of the i don't know some of the main modulators of uh for babies and children what are what are some of the main things that cause them to pay attention to things or not
1: yeah,
0: I don't know it's it's a really really interesting thing it's definitely as you say definitely something that's true you know in crowds it's definitely something that's true for adults too you know particularly so for crowds there's there's some really really nice kind of old research about you know how emotions kind of are shared very particularly powerfully in big crowds you know back to all of the witch hangings you know there there's this wonderful book um on my bookshelf looking at me now about kind of mass hysterias that develop. So, you know, when you get a large group of people together, that kind of makes emotions spread much more quickly. Uh, So you get these kind of mass hysterias that develop amongst a crowd. Now, a lot of the interesting stuff is happening, you know, with social media now, because even when we're not physically around people that are next to us, you know, we're very, very much in contact with them. And that seems to make, you know, our emotions much, much more effervescent as it were. So yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that about adults. It's not something I think about much, but yeah, it's definitely there. But just to just to answer your second question about infants, so why we're looking at with infants. Well, I guess kind of the main thing that we're interested in kind of, with infants is um we know that during early development you know you're you're very very reliant on everyone on, on an adult for absolutely everything. You know, so we literally you know spend the first nine nine months of our lives you know in in our mother's stomachs. You know, depending on them for ev- for everything. You spend every waking minute of your early life in the company of a, of an adult caregiver. So we're very, very dependent on adults for a lot of things. And I guess kind of we're looking at it two stages, I guess, Richard, and, and it might be useful to talk about it in two stages. So we start off by thinking about, you know, how we co-regulate kind of what we call physiological stress. So, so my kind of central nervous system levels of kind of arousal alertness. Uh, So that's kind of going from, you know, being very, very overexcited, very, very hyperactive, bouncing off the walls at one extreme to being kind of flat asleep at the other extreme. And we know that, you know, everybody does their best kind of attention and learning uh, when they're at somewhere in the middle. So somewhere in between and kind of overexcited and underexcited. Kids seem to go from one to the other. Yeah. Second. You know, that's absolutely like, what
2: happened? You know, they're sleeping.
0: Yeah, that's really, really interesting, Richard. And that's exactly, that's exactly one of the things that we look at. Yeah, kids definitely are kind of much, much more up and down in terms of their stress. So that they'll go from, you know, a high extreme to a low extreme, you know, really kind of at the drop of an eye. You know, they'll be quite calm and then you strap them into a car seat and they'll just immediately go off to sleep. So they can't, you know, maintain a stable alertness when they're young. They tend to drop down one way, but then often they will tend to get overexcited, you know. So I'll be playing... You no, know, just a game with my four-year-old son home and you know it's a nice game and it's a quiet game and then suddenly he'll be overexcited and suddenly he'll lose control of what he's doing completely so yeah so we're definitely less stable as kids you know, really, most extremely, when we're very young, we're we're less stable, and we kind of more stable as we go. So, so maybe the first way to to work up to the brain stuff, uh, which is more about you know how we co-regulate, how we share attention states, and you know higher order cognitive things, we can start just by thinking a little bit about how we co-regulate stress states between parents and children, because we know that that's really, really an important and really, really foundational for what I'm going to go on to say about kind of how we co-regulate kind of attention and brain states as well. Does that sound okay? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? So, what, what does co-regulate mean? I've heard that term a lot recently. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. What context have you heard it in? Out of
2: interest? Um, you know, with kids in school, uh, co-regulating, self-regulating, et cetera, that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm not sure okay. So they people they... using it or defining it properly,
0: but no. Oh, that's interesting. So, that, so it's something that parents, uh, teachers are telling telling you about, kind of, um, kids. So that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So basically, um. Yeah, so, so there's kind of, the, a lot of the theory of this goes right back to, I guess, really, really early kind of theories of kind of how we develop as individuals uh, through our relationships with other people. Um, so one of the things I'm thinking a lot about at the moment is I'm, I'm just doing some work uh, with some really good um, uh, researchers into attachment. So that's kind of this idea of how we form a healthy relationship with our caregivers and the different ways in which child-caregiver relationship can develop atypically. So you might have heard these phrases, you know, insecure attachment or kind of an avoidant attachment pattern where, you know, you're either securely attached to your parent, i.e. you go to them when you need help, but the rest of the time you're fine on your own. Um, or you can be, you know, ambivalent. So um, even when you need help, you don't want to go to them or you're kind of very withdrawing and when you do go to them or you could not go to them even when you do need help. So there's various kind of different kind of ways that we can think of that. And I'm just doing some research at the moment. I just had an all-day meeting on Friday just uh, with some, you know, really famous attachment researchers looking at this idea of kind of co-regulation of mood states as a a route into that.
2: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Well, What does that mean? You're using visual cues and other cues from people around you to achieve your own regulation? or or Yeah,
0: Yeah, you're asking a really, really tough question. So basically, the early theory suggests it's all quite involuntary. So basically, when we're in a situation where... You know, my own kind of arousal, my central nervous system arousal is excessive either for you know internal reasons that, you know, I'm just up and down and I'm just on an up fluctuation. You know, I'm uncomfortable. You know, life as a baby is very uncomfortable. You have a lot of growing pains. You have a lot of stomach aches. You're constantly feeding yourself to your fit to burst. It's a very uncomfortable thing. So when I'm all when I'm in a situation when I'm a bit older. Uh, where I see someone else coming into the room, or I'm in a new situation. So those types of situations where everything just gets a bit much. And the really classic theory back to kind of Balby and Ainsworth is, is kind of at those moments, I, I have this inbuilt reflex uh, to trigger what they call a proximity seeking behavior. Uh, so I call out to my uh, mum or dad, um, and then they come and then they give me some um, some caregiving. Uh, and that's kind of the really classic uh, way of thinking about it that no, I call out to someone when I need help. And the question that you just asked, Richard, about kind of the degree to which it's a voluntary thing, so the degree to which I'm doing kind of social signalling, is a really, really interesting question that we've kind of. It's a side question from that. So, you know, just as a side note, I've just done a paper. I'm just writing a paper at the moment on children being raised in more chaotic and noisy households. And I just actually was on the plane with a couple of groups of very, very busy parents, they all had about kind of, I think they had five, one group, one family had five kids and one group, I think had six kids. And it was really interesting watching now how caregiving behaviors are different in those types of, you know, much more big, noisy, probably more chaotic at home households. And we've done a paper linking it to household chaos and suggesting that in household chaos, kids can sometimes overexpress what they're feeling just to get attention. Yeah. And you can see if you look at the relationship between their internal levels of stress and the stress that it sounds like in their voice. Um, Then you get this kind of disjunction between kids and noisy households. But let's not get too far down that route. Let's just think about it in terms of, you know, the basic mechanism, which is, you know, I'm a child, I'm up and down, I'm unstable in my stress states. So when I'm in a high stress state, um, I call out to my parents, and then they come and they do this process of co-regulation. So they help me to calm down. And this is something that is thought to be, you know, foundational in the kind of setting of the parent child relationship and so on. So that's kind of the basics of it. Well, so- question. What are the dynamics within a family? Can one
2: person destroy the co regulation on the entire family? Okay. Does it say multiple
0: people? And what what kinds of types of co regulation have we seen? What kind of yeah, dynamics okay. are we you- seeing? yeah so that's a really really interesting question again richard you're asking really really tough questions now and that's something that um we're really really interested in looking at but we haven't looked at it yet so we've done a few projects with this but they've all just been with the mothers just simply because you know about 80 percent of our caregivers are uh, mothers you know by, by the and their babies about 12 months which we need a lot of our babies to be and a, a lot of the most of the dads have gone back to work so it's much harder so practically um, there is some research uh with dads um in the context of kind of sharing of good emotions And this is something I think about a lot, this idea that, you know, there was one lovely paper about uh, how you have your kind of, you you have more, on average, you have more of your kind of intermediate kind of mood states with your mum. And then you have more kind of intense bursts of high positive affect with your dad. And I definitely do that with my kids. I I get home at at 5.30 in the evening, and then we have like a bout of, you know, half an hour of really, really energetic play uh, with lots of kind of throwing them up in the air and catching them and that type of thing. Um, And they're kind of laughing a lot. and, And they do that a lot with me. And they spend more of their you know, quiet, even time with the, with the mum. But in terms of what you're asking, Richard, about sharing of bad moods, um, there's very, very little research into this for the very simple reason that almost all of the research, you know, just like I was saying, you know, really important to realise how neuroscience is limited, that, you know, almost all the research is done with people on their own um, in, in a brain scanner, which is very, very different to how we use our brains in the real life. And similarly, almost all research into stress um, is looking, you know, you bring children into the lab and and then we give them like a mild experimental stress, or so something that we think is going to stress them out slightly, and we look at how they react to it. So virtually everything that we know about stress comes from those types of paradigms. It's virtually impossible to to actually observe, you know, bad family relationships as they're happening. So we really have an amazingly little research into that. So we're des- we're kind of work with these little wearable sensors. So we've designed these little kind of sensors that we make as small and unobtrusive as possible uh, with the idea that people forget they're wearing them when they're at home but still honestly yeah if you uh if you rented like a family with apple watches yeah so that's all it's hard to get in apple won't let you anywhere near their algorithms and they're, and they're, they're quite tough uh, but we're actually kind of making something that's pretty much the same as an apple watch um, at the moment at the moment we're a bit bigger so they're a bit bit, bit clunkier than an apple watch but we're, we're aiming for that but even then, Richard, honestly, it's really hard just to get those types of families to sign up to be in research. It tends to be the parents that think they're good parents that want their parenting to be judged by signing up for a research study. And it's really, really hard to get these kind of hard to reach kind of populations. So yeah, so so we don't know very much about that. We're just starting to look kind of atypical and kind of suboptimal parenting much more. But the stuff we're doing is mainly on the basic mechanisms of kind of how you help children to manage, you know, across all children. So basically back to kind of where we were so my child's getting stressed getting upset and then my child does a cry for help and then um, I kind of step in and I help my child to calm down one of the things that we're working at the moment is this idea of how do you change when your child gets upset Um, and I present this to um, early years teachers uh, working with young children and they get kind of quite slightly surprised when I say in fact what our studies show is that Uh, When your child gets upset, you have a little spike in your own stress to match them. Yeah. And it's this process of kind of matching their stress. You know, with with a crying baby, you tend to pick them up, you know, get quite energetic, move them up and down the room, bounce them up and down, which is basically the same thing that you're kind of increasing your stress to match their stress to help them calm down. And that's something you definitely notice. Like, uh, for example, in call centres, they definitely train people. You know, if I'm often (laughs) quite a grumpy customer in call centres, and I'm often getting grumpy about something that hasn't happened for ages, and, you know, I've been waiting for 10 minutes, and they definitely now get trained to when they've got a customer who's a bit upset, if you make yourself sound a bit excited too, so yeah, I'm really, really sorry about this, like rather than just a really, really flat voice, then this idea that kind of matching the emotion of the person that you're dealing with is one way that you can help them to calm down. So that's kind of one of the things that we're looking at at the moment, you know, this idea of kind of how we match people's emotions to help calm down. But then obviously we're we're also looking at how that can go wrong in atypical development. So for things like anxious parents uh, tend to overmatch uh, their child's emotions. So so there must be a sweet spot somewhere in the middle that we haven't quite figured out yet. You know, you want to match your kids' emotions up to a state, up to a bit, but you don't want to match them too much. So so there's a lot still to figure out. So what other experimentation are you working on then that we have working on regarding that you can't get?
2: You know, let's say a whole family to use Apple Watches and interact with each other, for instance.
0: So, we're not doing many. So, uh, most of what we're doing is kind of just recording kind of large doses of data. And then we're kind of trying with different populations and stuff like that. But I suppose maybe the next kind of bit of experiment to, to tell you about might be the stuff kind of where we're doing more about kind of moving away from stress and how you kind of share stress within a family to talking about how you share attention patterns. So, you know, how the bit that I was talking about earlier. About you know, I'm sat there working on my laptop, and my kid, you know, suddenly becomes interested in my laptop just from the fact that I'm paying attention to it. And this idea of kind of how we share kind of attention patterns. So this is research that we're doing, not not with these kind of wearables, but with an EEG recording. So so the paper that that you sent me, Richard, at the start was 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 a paper where we kind of observe um, parents and children playing together. And we measure their brain activity, both of their sets of brain activity at the same time to look at, you know, how attention and learning kind of happens in the space between two brains, as opposed to just in one brain on its own. So I could tell you a bit about that, if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. good. So so basically, so this is kind of changing quite a lot, I think, kind of theoretically in terms of how we understand learning, because basically almost all of the research um, at the moment that's out there into how children's brains uh, kind of pay attention and learn and think about it as a kind of a flow of information from the outside world into our head. Yeah. So all of the classic theories of attention learning are about how information flows from the adult teacher to the child learner. Yeah. And so it's like, An old-fashioned approach, you know, I'm 43 and even I did this as a kid. The old-fashioned approach to learning where the teacher wrote out a long passage on a blackboard and you had to copy it down into your book. Yeah, that's an extreme example of a, like, learning as a one-way flow of information. And all of the classic theories about how children learn from adults are all about this idea of, you know, how adults are using kind of social signals to signal to their child that they're about to communicate something important yeah and about how children naturally mimic adults so so you know they see an adult doing something and the child copies it back uh, so it's very much kind of a flow from that from the adult to the for the child um but in fact that's wrong so uh so we know well it's not wrong it's kind of it's definitely not on its own enough yeah and um, so we know um, that in fact children actually pay remarkably little attention to their parents social signals um during a free interaction and just as we know that you know classic models of learning in schools are much more nowadays about making things interactive yeah so if you're in a school you're trying to get children to ask questions um, and tell them the answers yeah rather than just telling them a whole load of stuff you know and saying you've got to learn this yeah and that's all quite evidence-based so there's a lot of research happened uh, the reason that this shift in our educational practices happened is quite simply because there's a lot of research now suggesting that um if you for example, with, with babies, if you, if you wait for them to point at something before you tell them the word label for that object, uh, then you can measurably uh, see that the impact of that word label on their brain activity is greater than if you just present something uh, where they're looking. Yeah? So it's this idea of kind of infant-led and child-led learning. So just as we're we're discovering it in in this in with older children in school settings that child led learning is just more effective they just they learn faster uh, when you teach them something that they're interested in already so similarly we're discovering exactly the same thing with early learning so so what it looks like we're happening when we measure the really really fine grained patterns of uh, attention you know how children pay attention with their parents is not the case that as we traditionally thought that the parent is structuring the interaction. You know, they're saying, you know, look, baby, look at this. In fact, what's happening is the parent is kind of the child is shifting around on their own and the parent is kind of chasing after the child. So so the parent is forward predicting so I can see the parent anticipating what the child's next brain state is going to be. And they're very and, and then they the parent then rushes in and uses lots of different cues, it uses their touch, their voice. Uh, their eye gaze patterns to respond to what the child is paying attention to or interested in. kind of like yeah. when uh, a kid falls down, and they have that you know I don't
2: know what's going on look, and if the parent looks upset, they start to cry and laugh. But if the parent you know, most parents would rush in. Oh my god, are you okay? Yeah, and the baby. Oh. But you yeah. know they're definitely looking for cues right then.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's exactly the type of thing, Richard. That's a really, really nice, uh, nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, so they're very responsive uh, to things. And and actually, the last thing, actually, that's important to say about this that actually fits in very nicely is we've also done quite a bit of research. And, and I think this was actually the paper uh, that you had flagged up uh, suggesting that so babies and children um, are doing stuff at random. Yeah. So it's not this kind of organized kind of attitude to learning that we used to have of adults kind of organizedly teaching information. Uh, children do stuff at random. Uh, the adults are kind of following them responding in a lot of ways that you wouldn't be aware of yourself you know how you are tracking your child's kind of brain states Uh, choosing when to present information to them but also when they do something that they get a response that is something that they're very very sensitive to so i've done something at random but look my parent has matched it back yeah Um, and, and and they're very very sensitive to that and that seems to be a really really important you know, basic learning mechanism. I did something and that made something happen. And that means that that thing must be kind of a valuable thing to do, which is really nice. I'm not sure it's just a nice thing, though. I definitely noticed with my four-year-old that he does stuff to his sister uh, that he knows will get a response, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. So, you know, he knows that poking her in the eye with his finger uh, will get a big response from her. And that seems to be rewarding. Um, in exactly the same way that he kind of he he does something, he gets a response that sets off some kind of inbuilt learning mechanism in his brain, uh, which is why he carries on wanting to do it again and again and again. So we have to then work even harder to get him to unlearn that, uh, to learn something else. But something about this kind of, you know, we call it contingency. So so I've done something and someone responded to what I did seems to be a really, really powerful inbuilt mechanism for learning in the brain. Yeah, I mean, you know, kids are famous for pushing parents buttons
2: to. I'm also thinking what comes to mind is seeing a lot of parent phones all the time, you know, ignoring their kids today and looking at families and establishing parents that are really absent mentally attention wise versus ones that are very attentive. So that is a really
0: sad thing. And and I do see that a lot on the, you know, on the bus and on the train and, you know, the people where places where you kind of see other people doing their parenting. And yeah, definitely. So. You know, it's on our underground system in London. You just see it all the time. Parents just sat there on their phone, looking at their phone, and and, and their kid is just stood there, you know, looking up, trying to get their parents' attention and not. And it really is the kind of something that I really would say really doesn't help children's learning. So they learn from your responses. So they learn from doing things and how you respond. And it's very, very much kind of a social thing. And so by cutting kids off from that, we really are denying them learning opportunities. The big irony though, Richard, is the reason that smartphones are addictive um, is exactly the same reason. So they're very contingent. So the reason that social media is addictive, for example, is exactly the same thing. I do something and everything I do gets a response from someone else yeah so i do a post and then i'm immediately getting feedback from other people yeah so the same thing that children find addictive about interacting with us is this idea of contingency i do something and it gets a response social media companies are now exploiting that in adults to make social media more addictive by making it more contingent and more full of responses so that's why adults are ignoring their kids uh, by going on social media and interacting with other adults You know, and everything else that they could be doing with technology because technology throughout is very, very contingent. But no, it's really unfair on the kids because obviously they don't get the chance to interact and they get their contingent interactions, you know, in the old fashioned way uh, from talking to mommy and daddy. And if they cut off from that opportunity, that's when they really, really miss out on their learning opportunities. So
2: would it be helpful for parents to deliberately say more often, you know, hey, honey, why don't you go color this page in and show me when you're done? I want to see it so that the kid can have some time doing an activity, but they know beforehand that the parent wants to see it and wants to get feedback from them.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a really, really nice uh, nice way of thinking about it, Richard. So you're, what you're thinking about is in terms of kind of how to move from that need from immediate feedback. So, you know, everything I do gets a response, which is obviously quite exhausting as a parent, you know, and practically impossible if you've got multiple kids to how am I aware that this thing of the contingency is really, really important, but how do I do it in a practical way? So, you know, what you're talking about is kind of spreading out the contingency. So I'm not going to react immediately, but if you go away and do this thing, going to take you five, 10 minutes and then you do it, then I'll give you a big reaction and I, I will give you the kind of react, the, the praise and the you know responsiveness that you want. So yeah, that's a really, really good, good way of thinking about it, Richard. I try and work that into my own parenting practices because my kids at the moment because I think because I do this for my research and I'm so you know, thinking about this all the time. that I, I really try to be reactive. You know, it drives my friends mad. I really won't answer text messages when I've got the kids around and stuff like that. So maybe that would be a good thing, a good way of kind of weaning them off it and getting to the point where they're more independent. Because obviously that's an important transition as well for later childhood. Well, has anyone studied in families where parents
2: use the smartphones a lot? Do the kids tend to have them earlier and engage in the same behavior? And then in households where parents are really good about it, like it sounds like you are, do the kids not become obsessed with smartphones as early or as much?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And honestly, that's not that's not an area where I know a huge amount about whether they get more obsessed by smartphones or not. No, as I say, the things that make smartphones are addictive, to be addictive, are, are very similar to the types of things uh, that make interpersonal interactions addictive. No, you know, the, the social media have been very good, effective about, you know, working out what it is that we find addictive about interacting with other people and you know really kind of purifying it and then intensifying it uh, which is and uh, into something which is very very addictive you know and it really targets our reward mechanisms. so you no know, i would have thought and kind if of, any kid will find it you know powerfully kind of addictive in the same way that we do as adults but i don't know whether a kid who's who's watched their parents doing it more on social media would find it more so they definitely you hear stories about kind of children, even from quite a young age, are getting very sensitive to, you know, how their latest photo has gone down on Instagram. So, you know, my wife takes photos of the kids and, and, and had, they've got their own kind of Instagram channel and they don't really have a clue about it at all. But but some families where they share that with the child and then the child starts to get very sensitive from an early age to, you know, how many likes their latest photo has got and that type of thing. So, so that may be one way into it, but I don't know. I've certainly seen as well, lots of 12 month old kids we we have a lot of 12 month old kids in the lab we do a lot of studies with them and very often you pull out a phone to take a photo of them and then they immediately crack out their best selfie smile so it does make me laugh really a yeah. one-year-old a one-year-old yeah they're used they're very Jeez. used to a lot of one-year-olds now are very used to having a photo taken and they know exactly what the phone means and stuff um wow That's really- so, yeah so it so it is a thing but i mean having been quite kind of down on social media particularly from the point and phones and generally from particularly from the point of view of you know, parents being on their phone and preferring to interact with their phone than, than with their kids, I, I think that is quite tough. But this idea of, um, you know how we share attention between other people and how we learn, and this idea of interactive learning, uh, being being a much much more effective and much more evidence based way of of learning than the old fashioned way of kind of learning a kind of non interactive where there's someone teaching me and they're just teaching me stuff and I have to learn it. That's obviously the reason at the moment, and there are quite a lot of studies suggesting that learning happens better face-to-face uh, than from a screen so uh, you know the ones i know about best are about kind of early learning but i think there's stuff going all the way through uh suggesting that getting someone to teach us something is is more effective way to do it than, than teaching from a screen and that's simply because of this process that i was describing earlier richard that um when i'm teaching something to someone i'm continually adapting how i teach it to them second by second you know, if, if I can see, you know, they're starting to pay attention to something else, I'm, I'm constantly speeding up and slowing down my delivery. Whereas obviously, you know, a YouTube tutorial video can't do that. So it's not contingent in the same way. But obviously, you know, so the best way to teach kids, there's no doubt about it, would be to sit them down one-on-one with a teacher and everyone has a, their own teacher, you know, throughout the whole time of school. Obviously, we can't afford that. So we are trying to work hard at thinking, okay, how can we bring kind of early learning um, how can we bring what we're discovering about how to make early learning effective? Uh, kind of this interactivity and stuff. How, what are the other ways we can bring that into, you know, nursery settings um, and early school settings? So, you know, the, the, what what you call kindergarten. So, so how can we bring in that type of interactivity and that responsivity uh, to, to kind of maximize the effectiveness of early learning? Well, how important is the ratio of uh, teacher to students? I think that's I mean. a yeah. Word. So we've just got a thing in the UK, Richard, that our government, um, to get people back to work, to to encourage people to go back to work, they're they're now extending free childcare down to one and two-year-olds. So if both of your parents are in work, then then you're entitled to free government allowance for uh, free childcare for one and two-year-olds. And it's tricky, honestly, because I really wouldn't say... So at the moment um, our ratio is five to one under two year olds. Sorry, it's four to one for under two year olds, and they're thinking about in- increasing it to five to one uh, for under two year olds in order to make this this shift that they've just announced affordable. And um, and even f- four to one, Richard, I would say an under two year um, it really isn't enough, and it's really tricky because you know on the one hand we want kind of parents to be going back to work, but You know, at the end of the day, a one-on-one interaction, uh, you definitely learn best from it. This was one of the big, you know, complications with COVID that a a lot of parents were spending a lot more time a one-on-one with their kids. And for the families that it worked well, it was actually great for their learning. So there's definitely studies suggesting that a lot of kids uh, did some really, really good learning. It tended to, you know, as everyone's saying, exaggerate extremes and the good families got even better. So yes, when it's at that age of I do something... And I'm very sensitive to when my adult reacts back to me then definitely you know it's really hard if you're a a adult looking after four under two-year-olds at once and it's really really hard to be kind of doing that responding to them for all kids at once so it's tough yeah I would say you know partner one-on-one partnerships are, are optimal you know really for quite a while Obviously, it gets more complicated because you then start to think about, you know, peer-on-peer relationships and that type of thing. But they they often don't develop much later. And honestly, it's fine, I think, um, you know, if that comes on quite later. You know, even a lot of four-year-olds, five-year-olds, kind of at quite an early stage of developing peer-to-peer relationships. Well,
2: it sounds like it's very important then to use group dynamics to offset the you know the the high ratios of teacher to students and well, no, definitely. it's a bit harder but it sounds like that's
0: pretty yeah definitely but that's definitely something you know in terms of the early years richard it is definitely something that changes a lot so if you observe a bunch of four-year-olds in a room when you do circle time i think you do circle time in the states as well we do it in the uk where you know, the teacher sits in the middle and all the children sit in a semicircle around and, and it's really really interesting if you watch four-year-olds in that situation they can't really manage the group dynamics. So they tend to talk one-on-one to the teacher and they'll just say what they're saying, you know, what, what that, and that's it, you know, what's in me needs to what comes out. Whereas if you watch six-year-olds in exactly the same setting, you know, even exactly the same classroom, exactly the same chairs, they're so different and they're obsessed by the group dynamics. Um, and they're, you know, they're saying things and you know it's not what they really think and they're doing it just to impress their friends. So it's this age of four, five and six where you really get, you know, obviously it happens at different rates in different children, but overall, if you watch a classroom as a whole, you get this massive shift in socialization that happens from the point of view of age four. I just know what I want. I can't really keep track of what other people want is just what I want that I can track through to six year olds, which is I don't even know what I want. All I care about is what my friends are going to find impressive. Yeah, so I'll lie just to impress my friends. So it's that really, really massive shift that happens around about the age when we start school. So four, five and six. So, so yeah, really, really important because obviously you get a lot of learning from your friends later on as an older kid as well.
2: We're close to being out of time. We got a few more minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any other topics that you want to bring up that we haven't covered?
0: So, yeah, so we talked a bit about screen learning. Um, so another thing that I, I'm really interested in is this idea of you know back to the idea of kind of mood regulation. So so one of the things that we're trying to do is design um, a computer program that that can tell you how to calm down. So so we so I'm I'm hoping to do some work. It's a really nice um, thing. A snoo designed by this guy called Harvey Kopp. and it's basically a, a mechanized cot. So when the child starts to get upset, kind of in is just as I was saying that when I'm you know, in a call center and I'm trained now when, I, when I'm dealing with someone who's upset, I have to increase my own kind of upsetness in order to help them to calm down. And basically that's what exactly what this snoo does. So the child starts to get upset and it increases the speed that it's shaking them. And then basically when they then calm down themselves, it gradually removes the shaking. Yeah, Um, exactly the same. You know, you can write an equation. So we've kind of put an equation to say, okay, that's what I do. I initially match and then I reduce. And what I really, really want to do is to kind of try that, you know, like use kind of try to experiment, you know, what is the equation that predicts the best way to help someone else to calm down and actually try it out in something like a call center setting where you can, you know, give a live feedback to someone to say, okay, this is the level of stress um, in the person that you're talking to. What should your own level of stress be in order to help them calm down as quick as they can? And we can do that for parents, you know, so we're, we're talking about doing like a study where they get some live feedback. You know, how much, how stressed should I be in order to help my child to calm down? And then, as I say, you know, for people working in call centers, customer service as well. So so that's another area I think there's a lot of really, really interesting research to be done because we don't really, really don't know very much at all about that at the moment. Okay, very good. Well, Sam, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So there's a few different places. Um, so I've got a personal website, so www.profsamwas.com. Um, and then we've got a lab website. So that's www.uelbabydev.com. Um, or on Twitter, um, at Instagram, just search for Professor Sam and everything should come up. And then there are links to lots of other things from there. So, so those are the best places to start. Okay, very good. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Well, it's been great being on. Thanks so much. Great questions, Richard.
1: Oh, thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.